Now we come in our study of Deuteronomy to actually an entirely new section. The first four chapters, we were dealing with reviewing the journeys. Moses reviewed the journeys. Now he restates the law. And there are some of you are going to say, well, this is a duplicate of what we had in the 20th chapter of Exodus. It almost is a duplicate, but there'll be one important change we'll call attention to. And this simply means that the Ten Commandments, for that's what was given in the 20th of Exodus, they're repeated here that these are basic and these are fundamental moral laws. Now, I want you to notice something very important here about this particular section, what God says to them. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Number one, hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may, number two, learn them and keep them and do them. Now, these are the four steps, I think, of hearing the Word of God. The first is to hear the Word of God. The second is to learn them, is to become acquainted with what God is saying. And then the third is to keep them. Now, that means to put them down in your heart. Remember, David spoke about the fact, Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. That's keeping the word. But also, and do them. Not only should it be in your head and in your heart, but should get down there where the feet are and where your hands So we have the head, the heart, and the hands. And we have the doing of the Word of God. And great many people that say that they live by the Ten Commandments and that's their religion, the important thing is that you'll quiz these people, as I've done several times, I find out what they really mean is they've voted for them. They've heard them and they think they're good but they're not really keeping them, and they're certainly not doing them. And we'll see here that the law actually was given in order that, well, it was a plumb line put down by a crooked wall. It's a mirror that's held up to the heart. It's a headlight on a car showing the way into the darkness. And it reveals when there's a curve ahead. And God is making it very clear that he's not saving men by keeping a moral code. It's not that there's something wrong with the moral code because there's nothing wrong with the law, but there's something radically wrong with us. You want to hear Paul as he speaks to the Galatians in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Why? Well, he can't do them but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, that's clear enough. Anyone ought to understand what he's saying here is that no one is justified by the law. And now... He makes it also very, very clear that the law reveals that man is a sinner before God. Wherefore then serveth the law, he says in 3.19. It was added because of, or for the sake of transgressions, till the time. That is, it was temporary till the seed should come. And it was a schoolmaster, that is, a servant to take us by the hand and bring us to the cross, just like you take a little child to school. It brings us to the cross and says, Little fella, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. That's what the law was to do. Now let's look at the law. The law is good, friends. No question about that. I have no notion of junking the Ten Commandments. It reveals the mind of God, but it reveals also how far short I come of the glory of God today. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now put this law down on your life. Now listen to this. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, 
who are all of us here alive this day. Now, he didn't make it with the people down in Egypt. They didn't have the Mosaic law. That was not given till they got out in the wilderness and God's ready to bring them into the land. The law was given to the nation Israel. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount, saying, Now listen, here is the law. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now we have the law given. Number one, thou shalt have none other gods before me. You see, Israel was in a land of idolatry and in an age of idolatry. Man's first sin, friends, was not to become an atheist. He was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. At the Tower of Babel, you see, they made a great tower. It was a ziggurat on top of it. They offered sacrifices, apparently to the sun, because the sun and the planets seemed to be the first things that they worshipped. After all, it wasn't the sun that brought the flood. They were not about to worship thunder and lightning at this particular time. They were afraid of it. And so man begins to worship the creature rather than the Creator. Now, God puts up this commandment, Thou shalt have none other gods before me. It's not until you get to the time of David that atheism comes in. You see, men here are too close to the mooring mask of Revelation. They were at the time that God had revealed himself. And therefore, there's no one denying the existence of God. And in David's day, it was the fool that saith in his heart, there is no God. Now, the fool, that word for fool means insane. Now, a man that says there is no God is insane or else. That man is not sincere. A friend of mine said to a man he overheard speaking and saying he didn't believe there was a God. And this friend of mine who had a real ministry in dealing with atheists said to him, said, did I understand you to say you didn't believe that there's a God? He said, that's right. Well, he said, now I want to ask you a question. He said, the Scripture says, only the fool saith in his heart there is no God. And that word fool means insane. Now he says, either you were insane when you said that, or you were not sincere. You didn't mean it. Which was it? I'd like to know. Well, the man was a little embarrassed about that. You see, there's no commandments here about atheism. There are commandments about worshiping many gods. In fact, the first two commandments, Thou shalt have none other gods before me, and thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those that hate God and those that love him. And he says, now, you will not make any likeness of anything at all, no other gods. And a little later on, He's going to say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy might. The Lord Jesus says that's the greatest commandment. And over against that, why, there is the great company of those that hate God today. Now, a great many people will say, well, I don't worship an idol at all. Paul said that covetousness is idolatry. Anything that you give yourself to, Anything that stands between you and God is your God. You say, I have no idols? Well, anything. There are some people, a bank book is their God. Others, golf clubs. Others can be a child or a grandchild, by the way, or a television screen. Anything between you and God today is your idol. Now, notice the third commandment. The first two now were about idolatry and about other gods, you see. Now, the third commandment, thou shalt not take 
the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember that Paul says in the third of Romans, their mouth is full of cursing. All you have to do is walk down the street or be in any public place, and you'll hear the foul mouths of people today. Probably there's never been a time when there were so many foul-mouthed people, dirty-minded, foul-mouthed folk as there are at the present. God hates it. And God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Paul says, Their mouth is full of cursing. man said to me one time in downtown Los Angeles, why, he said, Why, McGee, you can't say that everybody's mouth is full of cursing. I said, Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's make an experiment. Let's go out here on the corner, and you hit the first man that comes by, hit him in the mouth, and see what comes out. My friend, you know what would come out. Have you noticed that all of these commandments are negative that we've had here so far? But now we come to the first positive one. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Now, I know that there are going to be those that say, well, now we ought to start keeping the Sabbath. Well, that's Saturday. You're right about that. But the very interesting thing is that all of the commandments are repeated in the New Testament with the exception of the Sabbath day. That's not given to the church. The church met on the first day of the week. Now, the Sabbath had a peculiar relationship to the nation Israel. You'll recall that when we were back in the book of Exodus, in chapter 31, verse 13, God said this, "...speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord, doth sanctify you." And in verse 16, he says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. That was given to the nation Israel. A Jewish friend of mine who's a Christian, he calls these people who want to get under the Sabbath day to day, he calls them secondhand Jews. And believe me, that's what they are. This was given to the nation Israel. Now, here is the thing that's remarkable about this commandment, and this is the thing that is different. That was given back in Exodus. Back in Exodus, they were to observe the Sabbath because in six days God created the heavens and the earth. But now the Sabbath is going to be a peculiar relationship between God and the children of Israel. And notice what he says in verse 15. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Now, you see, it was given to a people who'd been in slavery in the land of Egypt. Were your ancestors ever slaves in the land of Egypt, friend? I doubt it, unless you're a Hebrew. And these people were. And the Sabbath was given to them, you see. This is something well to note, by the way, in the Word of God. Now we come to a different section here, that which is duty to God and duty to man. Now, honor thy father and thy mother belongs to that, I believe, which is related to God. Because in the person of a father and mother, when a little one is growing up, that individual stands in the place of God to them. The little one looks up to the father and to the mother, and that's the way it should be. God made it very clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the wisdom of thy mother. They are to stand in the place of God at the beginning. Honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, this is given to a people going into that land, and they are to honor their father and their mother. And friends, no nation that does not observe this 
is going to be blessed. That right now is the great problem in America. Oh, I recognize father and mothers are not worthy in many cases of this respect. But God also, you remember in Ephesians, said something to the father and mother about not provoking their children to anger too. Now he says in verse 17, Thou shall not kill. Now I won't stay here very long, but this is very important to see here. Thou shalt not kill. This is the sixth commandment. And the word for kill here is a very technical word, ratsash, and it means thou shalt not murder. And this is personal. This hasn't anything to do with a soldier going to war. I know today this is being used a great deal, but it's taking it entirely out of context. Hasn't anything in the world to do with war, because you're going to read just a little later on, God tells these people there to destroy their enemy in the land. That is an altogether different basis. Now, this word has in it the thought, premeditated. It means that you're angry at someone. And this is a personal grievance. And as a young man said to me, and he said this a couple of years ago, I don't want to go to Vietnam. I'm not angry at anyone over there. I don't want to go over there and kill. Well, I said, by the way, if you were angry with someone over there and went over there and sought them out and tried to kill them, you'd be a murderer. But this is put on an altogether different basis. We are supposed to be a nation that is attempting to protect the weak and the helpless over there. That is the propaganda, at least. I'm a little confused myself today with what's happening in this world. I don't think that we are a moral leader of the world today, by any means, not with condition our country is in today. But the whole thesis is that today a soldier is in a different position than attempting to put this commandment down upon him. It does not fit him at all. This is that which is entirely personal. I'd love to dwell with that, but we cannot do that. Then the seventh, neither shalt thou commit adultery. Everything today is sold by sex, and it's around us on every hand. This is a sex-mad age, and this still stands, God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And these are the great sins that are pulling our nation down today. Neither shalt thou steal. And this is something I know there are people who say, Well, I never held up a supermarket, nor did I hold up a bank. Well, that may be true, but these are things that can be in your heart, you see. Our Lord said that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And that if you look upon a woman to lust after you're guilty of adultery. And I think all of these commandments could be made a spiritual exercise. Now he says, neither shalt thou desire, that is, covet thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that's thy neighbor's. In other words, this is covetousness, and this is a sin, just a want to get something that is not our own. These are very important to remember here. Israel was scattered because they did not keep these commandments. Now, will you notice, God says to them, verse 27, "...go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say. Speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we'll hear it and do it." Now, this is what the children of Israel promised to do, but they never did do it. And now, in verse 29, listen to him. Oh, that there were such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And the problem of this nation, of course, is that they fail to keep that. Now, that ought to be a lesson to any person today, that here are people under favorable conditions in the land, for the law was slanted to that land as well as to the people. They were unable to keep it. And if they are unable to keep it, you and I are unable to keep it. And it is a mirror held up to us. We're to look in it 
And it won't save us. The law won't save you. It'll reveal to you you're a sinner. It'll show the spot on. But there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And just as you have in your bathroom a mirror, that will show you the smudge spot on your face. But you've got a basin underneath that mirror. That's where you wash it away. Now, the mirror won't take away the smudge spot. You can look in it all you want to and rub up against it. You must come to that basin. And the law is a mirror that tells you to start washing, friends. It's to come to Christ. And that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will keep on cleansing us from all sin. And the important thing is not whether you approve the Ten Commandments or what you think of them. The important thing is, friends, have you kept them? And if you're honest, you know you haven't measured up. That means you need a Savior. There's a smudge spot on you, but he can take it away. He says, come now, let us reason. Together saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When you come to Christ, he forgives you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness that you might stand spotless before him. Friends, as we come to the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, I think that you have noted that in the past two or three times, in fact, since we've been in Deuteronomy, that the emphasis is on two words, obedience and love, or probably I should turn it around and say it should be on love and obedience, not actually law and obedience, and the way that you and I express Our love for God is in obedience. The Lord Jesus put it like that. He said, if you love me, keep my commandment. And therefore, today, the acid test is just simply that. If you love him, he says, keep my commandments. Salvation is a love affair. We love him because he first loved us. And that is, may I say, so important for us to see in these days. God's love is actually expressed in law. That is true. And the great principle of law is love, but love expresses itself in obedience to God. That is the thing that the Lord emphasizes, as we shall see again and again in this section of Scripture. In the seventh chapter, in verse 9, he says, "...knowing therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations." Now, the great principle, therefore, of the gospel is expressed in Deuteronomy here. It's a great principle, and that is... Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And we love him because he first loved us. Obedience is the important thing here all the way through. It was if they keep these commandments, if they keep them, if they keep them, that is the thing that was all important as far as God was concerned. They must obey him. They must keep his commandments. Now, somebody says, well, if love is in the Old Testament, what's new about it in the New Testament? Well, the love of God has been translated today into history by the incarnation and death of Christ. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us that while we were What will? We were without strength. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. You see, it's one thing to express love by bringing these people out of Egypt. It's another thing to die for them. It's one thing to say something from the top of Mount Sinai. It's another thing to come down and take upon himself our frail humanity, made in the likeness of man, and to die upon a cross for our sins. Again, I repeat it, salvation is a love affair. We love him because he first loved us. And here in his love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and he gave his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, we come here to this sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, and in this sixth chapter here, you see him again interpreting the law for them. He says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land, whether ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. You see, the great emphasis is put here upon obedience. That is the great emphasis today, to put an emphasis on obeying those things that God has commanded. You see, there are actually only two classes of people in the world. Those that love God and those that hate God are, as he makes it very clear in verse 29 here, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me, was what God condemned them for later on. And you remember the things Samuel said to Saul? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of lambs. The Lord Jesus said, you remember to Simon, when he gave him his commission, Simon, lovest thou me? I'm going to heaven someday. And you know what the most wonderful thing about heaven is going to be beside the fact that the Lord Jesus loves me and that he gave himself for me? But I'm going to love everybody. But best of all, everybody's going to love me. Now that, my friend, is going to make heaven a very wonderful place. These are great basic truths that we're picking up in Deuteronomy. Now I'm reading verse 3 of chapter 6. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. These are the things that are so important here. The fact that they were to keep the commandments of God, and they fell so far short, just as we do today. Now, will you notice, we come now to what is probably and it's considered by theologians to be the greatest doctrinal statement that there is in the Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This is a tremendous statement. Will you look at it for just a moment? The Lord here is Jehovah, and the word God is Elohim. That word Elohim is a plural word. Since there's no number put with him, you assume it's three. That is, there is in the Hebrew a singular, and there is a dual. Then there's a plural. This is the plural. Since a number's not with it, you'd assume it would be three, our trinity. And it's here, O Israel, Jehovah, our trinity, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. Now, they were living in a world of idolatry, polytheism, the worship of many gods, and the message that the nation Israel was to give was this message, a message of the unity of the Godhead, the oneness of the Godhead. Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. And that is the great message that the nation Israel was to give in a world of idolatry. Now, you and I today live in a world not of idolatry, of polytheism, but atheism. And in this world today, we're to give the message of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we're talking about the same Jehovah because he's our Elohim. 
He is our Trinity. He's one Jehovah. Now, will you notice, we have here what the Lord Jesus said was the greatest commandment of all. He didn't go to the Ten Commandments to get the greatest commandment. He came here, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And then you'll recall that back in the book of Leviticus that they were told to love their neighbor also. And the Lord Jesus took these two commandments and said, These are the two greatest. This is the greatest. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Now, do you measure up to this? I'm of the opinion that many of us would have to confess today we do not measure up to this. We do not love him with all our mind and heart and soul. I'm afraid that you're listening to a preacher right now that could not make that statement. He wishes that he could. But I have to say with Paul, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I have not yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth under those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And friends, I want to say today that I love him. I wish I loved him more than I do. But he's the object of my affection today. I can truly say that I love him. And my friend, this is the real test. I think the real test today is, do you love him? That's what he said to Simon Peter, lovest thou me? I think he'd say that to you and me today. And until we've sat at Jesus' feet, come to know him. After all, he's the chiefest among 10,000. He's one altogether lovely. And he is, as Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. He is our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. The liberal, back in the days when they were called modernists, one of these old modernists years ago, he said the world is tried in two ways of getting rid of Jesus. One is by crucifying him, and the other by worshiping him. Well, he didn't believe in the deity of Christ, you see. I have news for him. I'm not trying to get rid of him, but I worship him. I don't want to get rid of him. I want to know him. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does he mean to you today, friends? What does Jesus mean to you? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. With all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And the Lord Jesus reached into Leviticus and said, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. And friends, there's no use today talking about loving him and hating those that he's redeemed, his own. He said to Saul of Tarsus, you remember, Why persecutest thou me? And I think that probably he might say that to some Christians today who profess to know him and serve him. He'd say, why are you persecuting me? And they say, well, I'm not persecuting you, Lord, I love you. And he'd say, oh, yes, you are. Why is it you're criticizing so-and-so so severely? Why is it that you're opposed to those who are giving out the word of God? Why is it that you become a hindrance instead of a help? And I say to you, we better be very careful today when we talk about loving him and hating other believers. My friend, you can't spend your time trying to destroy the ministry of someone else and then talk about how much you love him. That is just blatant and bold and bald hypocrisy and nothing else. Now let's move on here. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now, that's the place where David said that he'd hidden the word of God in his heart, that he might not sin against him. And that is the place that you and I should have the word of God, my friends, is in our hearts. You'll recall that 
Paul had something to say about that over in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, verse 4. And I should read this in connection now with what's coming up. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is, bring them up actually in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is something that you see that God held the parents responsible for, was this very thing here. And you'll find all the way through the Scripture, a great deal is said to parents concerning their responsibility. And he says, train up a child in the way he should go. Now, that doesn't mean in the way you want him to go. It means God has a way for him to go, and you are to find that out. And that means, parents, you need to stay close to God. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, with that as a background, notice how this follows. These words shall be in your heart. How? Verse 7, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Now today, Coca-Cola sticks up a sign everywhere they can, and all other concerns today are constantly putting up signs, and they ruin the countryside, putting up these tremendous billboards and sticking up signs everywhere, and neon lights greet you down every business street today. Now, God says, thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. God says, I want my word to be before you. No wonder America's turning to liquor and the cigarettes and drugs. When these things confront you, no wonder young people turn to these things, because this is the thing that greets them today. Now, God wanted his word taught to his people like that, and how important it is. Now, you have a section here where our Lord reached in at the time of his temptation, and he quoted here, verse 13, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shall swear by his name. That's over Matthew 4.10 and Luke 4.8. And then down in verse 16, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's in Matthew 4.7 and in Luke 4.12. You see, these were quotations that the Lord Jesus used to meet the attack of Satan. No wonder the devil hates the book of Deuteronomy. It's for that reason. Now, verse 23, And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in, that is, out of the land of Egypt, and bring us into the promised land, to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. Now, that's what salvation is, redemption. Salvation is God has saved us out of death and sin and judgment, and he's brought us into heaven, into the body of Christ, into the place of blessing, into fellowship with himself. And you see, salvation is actually not complete. He was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification, our righteousness, that we might stand complete before him. He's brought us out. He intends to bring us in. Therefore, we can say today, I have been saved. We have eternal life when we trust him. I am being saved. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. And I shall be saved. Beloved, it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, don't you be discouraged with me. God's not through with me. And I won't be discouraged with you because God's not through with you. Years ago, a dear little lady with a sunbonnet on got up under the brush arbor to give a testimony. It was a testimony meeting. And she says, you know, most Christians ought to have written on their back, this is not the best that the grace of God can do. How true that is. Now, in chapter 7, 
We have very strong language. Here it says, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Now, you see, God has said, Thou shalt not kill. That's personal animosity, personal hatred that leads to murder. That's a different word here. They are to destroy these people in the land. Now, the enemy says, oh, this is terrible. That is the liberal, and I consider him the enemy of God because he seems to hate the God of the Old Testament. In fact, he says he does. One called him a bully. God says to utterly destroy them, and they don't like it. And also he says, verse 3, "...neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son." His daughter shalt thou not take unto thy son. Remember the destruction of Jericho. God says, don't you touch a garment, you let them alone. And don't you take even a wedge of gold. They took nothing, they burned the city. And you say that is terrible. Maybe you don't have all the facts. And the interesting thing, the liberal didn't. These people were eaten up with venereal disease. And had they married with them, it would have destroyed the race. Now, Moses didn't know much about disease germs, but God seemed to know a great deal about them. And these people were polluted and corrupt. And God put them out of the land. He told his own people, if you indulge in it, I'll put you out of the land. And God told them to destroy their altars, their false worship. This was the thing that they were to do. But God makes it very clear he's a God of love. Listen to this. Verse 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, redeem you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You remember God said in Exodus, I've heard their cry. That met a response in the heart of God. He loved them. Now, verse 9, "...knowing therefore that the Lord thy God is God, the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandment to a thousand generations." And he keeps repeating this, verse 13, "...and he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee and will bless the fruit of thy womb, the fruit of thy land, the corn, and so on." How wonderful it would have been had they believed God. Now he says, verse 18, "...thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto Egypt." This was to encourage them. God would take them into the land, and God would give the land to them. Verse 22, "...and the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee by little and little, that thou mayest not consume them at once." Why did God do that? Well, because he didn't want the wild beasts to take the land. And then in verse 23, "...but the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee, and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed." Whether you like it or not, they were destroyed. They were put out of that land because of their abominations. And don't say God was not patient. Way back yonder, God told Abraham, "...I'm going to put your children down in the land of Egypt." And they'll not come out for 430 years. Why? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God says, I'm going to give the Amorites 430 years to see whether they'll turn to me, whether they'll turn from their sin. And friends, how much longer do you want God to give them? Why, may I say that a landlord wouldn't give any tenant that long to pay his rent. God was giving them 430 years. I don't think the liberal would ask for any more time than that. God is a God of mercy and love in the Old Testament as well as he is in the New Testament. Now, friends, as we come to the eighth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, we've come into another division of this book according to our outline of it. We have here now religious and national regulations. Now, in this section, Moses is restating the law, and the great emphasis here is upon love and obedience. 
That is the important thing. You would think here in Deuteronomy, especially in the Old Testament and in this section that gives the law, that it would be law and obedience. But it's not. It's love and obedience. And you'll recall back in chapter 7, in verse 7, "...the Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you, because you were more in number than any people." For ye were the fewest of all people. Never a great nation, numerically, would not compare to the Chinese or to India or to other great nations of the world. Verse 8, he says, "...but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand." God makes it very clear that when he heard their cry down there, that distress cry, he responded because he loved them. Now, what is the answer to the love of God? Well, it's obedience. Verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations." Now, God will bless any people that respond to his love, and the response is obedience. And today, the first response he asks of you is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. When you respond to that, then he has other things to talk to you about, your life. And when we respond in obedience to the love of God, blessing ensues. Now, in the eighth chapter here, we have religious and national regulations, and we have God's past dealings or assurance for the future. Now, notice this. Here's a new generation. They are on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're ready to cross over into the land with high anticipation and hope. And now Moses is preparing them to enter the land. In all this section here, listen to him now, and this is a remarkable section also. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. You see, preparing them to enter the land, and they are to obey. Verse 2, "...and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no." Now, we have a marvelous revelation of God and his dealings with us today here. He wants us to remember the past. Paul put it like this for the believer, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You are to remember that God has led you and blessed you. And that's true. I'm confident of many of you today. You can say, God's brought me up to this moment. Well, has he? Well, if he has, he'll continue to do it. Now, God is encouraging them here and giving them an assurance for the future to tell them to just remember. Remember all the way that the Lord God. Now, why did God test them in the wilderness? Well, it was to humble them and to prove them, to know what was in their heart. Now, that explains why God puts you and me through the mail. God sometimes puts us in the furnace, friends, and he heats it up very hot. Why? He tests us, and it humbles us, too. And I tell you, I think Christians need humbling today. You know, little man is proud. He's cocky. He's self-confident. And I'll be honest with you, he's an abomination, little man. Have you ever listened to some of these people boast and brag about what they do and how proud they walk this earth? Little man shouldn't walk this earth like that. And so God, for his own, he puts them through the mill in order that he might humble us and that he might prove us. You know, testing 
really brings out the metal that's in a person. If he's really a child of God, that's the thing that really is the test when trials and troubles come. And I think that's the reason today that our churches are filled with the affluent people. They've never been tested. You can't tell whether they're genuine or not because they've never been tested. It's the man that's been tested. That's the man that you need to look to. And that's the man that you know is genuine. You know, metal has to be tested like that. Now, God says he did that for that reason. Verse 3, And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger, fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now, this was quoted by the Lord Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. And if we didn't have that, you'd never dream that our Lord would turn to this place right here. But this is a great spiritual lesson for us today. Friends, God's been good to us. He's blessed us in many, many ways. And he's blessed us with many material things. But you see, the important thing is that God gives you those things in order that you might see that there is spiritual wealth and that it's the Word of God that is the real wealth for the child of God today. Now, here is without doubt one of the most, well, it's a strange statement, but it's a marvelous statement, and it's a miraculous statement. Listen to this, verse 4. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Now, imagine having a suit of clothes that would not wear out. I know the ladies wouldn't like this at all. It'd be bad to come up after the first year, the forty years, and the lady go to the man and say, Look, hubby, I need a new dress. Why, he says, that one looks brand new. And I tell you, when you do that 40 years, you get pretty far behind in the styles. But after all, styles didn't change there in the wilderness anyway, so it didn't really make much difference. But this is marvelous. But that's not the most marvelous thing. It's this, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. A medical missionary in the Philippines came to me many years ago when I was teaching the book of Deuteronomy, here in Pasadena, California, in the church I served here. And he said, have you ever noticed that he says that neither did thy foot swell these 40 years? And I said, no, and frankly, I didn't know what he was talking about, to tell the truth. Well, he said, I'll tell you what he was talking about. He says, the disease out in the Orient, because of the sameness of diet, and he says, I've treated many cases, is the swelling of the foot. And beriberi, he called it. And he said, that comes about because of a sameness of diet, that they're not getting all their vitamins, and they're not getting all the nourishment they should have. Now, what did these folk eat for 40 years? Manna. God told them down here that he fed them with manna. It was a miracle food. And the interesting thing is, their foot didn't swell, which meant they got all their vitamins in manna. Manna was a wonderful food, and it's to illustrate, as he says here, the Word of God. And, you know, the thing about the Bible is this, and I marvel at this. Some folk will write me about a certain message I give, and they say, you know, I was in trouble, and that chapter is the chapter that brought me to God. And it brought comfort to my heart. Somebody else read said, I was in sin. I'd gotten away from God, cold and indifferent. And that brought me. And then somebody else writes and says, I listened and I was saved. You know, you won't get swelling of the foot, my friend, if you read the Word of God. In other words, the Bible will meet your individual need 
whatever it is. This is manna that we're having here. This is such a wonderful chapter, and I'm already bogged down here, and I shouldn't do that. Will you notice the temporal blessings that he promised to them? He says in verse 5 here, "...thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee." Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks and water, fountains, depths that spring out of the valley, a land of wheat and barley. God promised to the nation Israel temporal blessings if they served him. Now, he does not promise that to Christians today. I would have you note this. This is so important because there is a lopsided notion that if you are today a faithful Christian, that God will prosper you temporally, that he'll prosper you with the things of this world. That, my friend, is not true. Now, wait just a minute. Will you hear me? There have been a few outstanding, successful businessmen. And this attracts other businessmen that are not so successful. These men say, I took God into partnership, and God blessed me abundantly. Well, hallelujah. He does that sometimes. I admit that. But that's not what he promised you. He promised you, blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Now, he's promised you that. And he'll make good on spiritual blessings. But you can't show me a verse in the New Testament where God has promised to bless you temporally as a child of God. May I say, he hasn't promised that. But, you know, God's always overdoing it. He gives us more. And when he does that for some, does not mean he'll do it for all. Now, I have met some very wonderful Christians that God has prospered financially. And they're well off. And I thank God for them. But I also want to say this to you. Some of the choicest children of God today, they've only been blessed spiritually and not with the things of this world. And they seem to be the happiest, by the way. And they seem actually to do more for God than anyone else. I could tell you some remarkable stories about how God has used certain, actually, as far as the things of this world are concerned, they were poor in those things. And yet, what a wealth of blessing they have been to this poor preacher and have been to the cause of Christ in the world today. God promised Israel temporal blessings. He's promised us spiritual blessings. And that's one of the many major distinctions between the nation Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And let's keep that straight, will you? Because it will prevent a great deal of heartache. And it will cause a great many children of God to rejoice and not lapse back into a backslidden condition. We've seen that happen many times. Now he says in verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And this is a warning, you see, and he'll emphasize that warning in the next chapter. Now, will you notice verse 15? Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint. You see, God reminds them of what he's done for them in the past. And then he says, Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And God has promised to bring this nation as the leading nation into the millennium that's into the future. Now, God has not promised the church that, friends. Don't appropriate that for yourself. The Lord Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and take you to myself. That is the hope of the child of God today, is the coming of Christ to take us out of this world. The hope of the nation Israel is in this world. And that, my friend, 
is something we need to make a distinction about. It'll cause utmost confusion if you try to mix these together. There are too many theologians that use a blender. They put the whole Bible in the blender, and believe me, they can really mix it up. And when you got it mixed up, you can't tell what's in there. No wonder we have so much confusion. Now, verse 17, "...and thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swear unto thy fathers as it is this day." When that nation is in that land and being prospered, you know they're obeying God. And if they're not being prospered in that land, they're not obeying God. Look at them today. You make your own decision. Now, verse 20, "...as the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God." This is God's warning to them. I'm putting you in that land. Now, if you're obedient unto me, I'll bless you. And if you're not obedient unto me, I'll treat you as I treated those nations that were in that land. fact of the matter is, God treated them lots worse than he treated the nations that were in that land. Why, you say, I didn't know that. Oh, yes, he did. And you know why? They had more light. Light creates responsibility before God. 